0: It's certainly a pleasure to be here to hear that very special music. That was just absolutely spectacular. Appreciate all the work of all of you going into that. And welcome to all those who are watching online, we don't have a figure on that as yet, how many are out there, but welcome to all of you. Uh, they've revised the figure for those here up over 600 now, and uh, we'll have to wait and see at the end of the day how many it is. You know, somebody said that men can't count, that's why they should have women counting. Uh, <clears throat> I-, I learned uh, when I was over the auditorium in uh, Chattanooga and various other places uh, that Uh, You have to have them count at least a couple times because uh, it's always going to be different. And not just a little bit different, sometimes significantly different. So apparently uh, they've advised it up over over 80 more people here than what they originally had. Either that or a lot of people came in late. I'm not sure which it is. (coughs) You know, watching the choir, I, I was looking at some of the young people that were there, some that I've known since they were... Really small and tiny and how rewarding it is to see them grow up and to see all the young people who are here in the lobby and hanging out around different places. Uh, I, the article that I wrote <coughs> recently, I think for the Living Church News, if I recall correctly, about the joy of working with our youth. Uh, I, I can truly say that I, I love our young people. I know I don't know all of you. But I think most of us in this room who are older can say the same thing. We we love our young people uh, because we see the potential in them. And that's why we uh, sometimes keep them from having fun. I'm getting way ahead of myself in my sermon, but nevertheless... Young people sometimes think that mom and dad are there to keep them from having fun because once you reach the age of 40, there's no fun in life anyway. Um, others would counter that life begins at 40 because that's when the kids start moving away. But nevertheless, uh, we do try to keep our young people from having some kinds of things that are fun fun today but not so fun tomorrow and in reality we are trying to help them to avoid some of the mistakes that we made we didn't always listen to mom and dad and didn't think that they knew very much about our world and that's been going on since the beginning and so we make the same mistakes over and over again but nevertheless, we still have hope. And when I look at some of the young people that were up here on stage, remembering how small they were, and now they've grown up to be fine young people, uh, taking their place in the world, serving God, representing God in a positive way, it's very heartwarming to see that. You know, our world is a, is a difficult place to grow up in. It's always been difficult. My father's generation, the generation of my wife's father and mother, or mothers, was a difficult time. They grew up during the Depression, something that is even ancient history to me. But I heard a lot about it. And they had a different value of money because of what they went through. But they also went through the Second World War. My wife's father was on a destroyer during the Second World War. And I still remember, on more than one occasion, where he talked about one of the trips across the ocean, guarding the, uh, the troop transports and the, the cargo ships. Of, uh, you know, in the middle of the night, when he was standing on watch, and another ship nearby just exploding from a torpedo hit. I think that was more toward the uh, latter part of the war. I don't know exactly what year. was a very dangerous thing where literally dozens of ships could be sunk in a single convoy crossing the ocean. A very dangerous place because of the German submarines that would come up at night in wolf packs because there were a number of them waiting for the prey. And then they would pick their targets and shoot amongst them. Many lives and a lot of cargo was lost. Would not have been a very fun place to be, especially aboard a merchant ship during that time. When the United States came into the war during the early months of 1942, ships traveling up the east coast of the United States thought they were safe. They'd been doing that for quite a long time, but all of a sudden, Things changed. They didn't realize they had to turn their lights off at night so they wouldn't be so easily seen and such easy targets. They weren't very vigilant. They weren't very awake. And it took a number of ships to be sunk before they realized that we're in a war. Not just those ships going across the Atlantic, but those that were traveling up the coast of North Carolina and some of the other states along the East Coast. Today, we're living in a different kind of stealth warfare, one that some of you are very familiar with and some are not. But right now, 24-7, there's a war going on in cyberspace where countries and individuals and companies are targeting other countries and companies and individuals, trying to break in trying to have their way with uh, the secrets of others. And that's going all all the time. Countries are probing, looking for weaknesses in another country's internet and communications, trying to find a way to take down the infrastructure of another com- country. The power grid of another country its going on all the time. We're waging that war just as China and Russia and others are. And there are people, bad actors, in places like Romania and Ukraine and Africa and really all over the world that are looking for you as a victim as well. For ransomware or for something else. I just got one. In fact, I I was going to bring it and I didn't bring it. I got one of those that if you don't pay me $1,200 in bitcoins in 36 hours, then somebody's going to harm you one way or the other. Just a scam. They targeted schools this last week, I believe it was. I think it was this last week. Bomb threats. If you don't pay so much in bitcoins, then there's a bomb that will go off in your school. Shut down a number of schools. There's a war going on constantly in our world. But there's another war that's going on that's targeting you and me as well. And that is that there is a an adversary, a great adversary, who hates you and cares nothing for you or for your children. And he would love to destroy you. Now, in some of these wars, like a cyber war, we don't have any victims laying around in the sense of we don't have any bodies laying around. We do have victims, but not too many bodies yet. But wars that start out that way can morph into more serious wars where there are dead bodies. And in this war that we're in, where we have this adversary that is lurking, Always beneath the surface, so to speak. He's a powerful adversary, and he's trying to destroy you and destroy me and to take away what God is offering to each one of us, and that is eternal life. With our young people, you already think you have eternal life. You know academically you're going to die. You know that. In fact, you might even be afraid of dying. I remember as a young person, I'd hear advertisements where they said that one in four people are going to get cancer in their lifetime. And I looked at my family, and there's my mother, and my father, and their sister, and I'm the fourth one. And it used to worry me when I'd hear that. And now they say one in three. When I was young, I never voiced that to anybody other than To you, maybe I've mentioned this a time or two since I've grown up, but yes, you do worry about dying. You do recognize you could die. But in another sense, you think you're going to live a long time and 40 years of age is a long, long, it's an eternity way off, isn't it? But as we look around, we all get to the place at some point when it's over in this physical life. We're not going to live here for eternity in this physical life. And the Bible study last night, we had an excellent Bible study by Mr. Munson talking about trials and and really looking at the big picture of things that God is, is developing character. He is trying to see what we are really made of that we might live for all of eternity. That we might be there with Him. This incredible reward that God is offering to us. And at some point in time, we all want to know, are we going to live after we die, or are we going to be dead forever? It really is only going to be one one way or the other. Either we're going to live, or we're going to cease to exist. Even the sermonette, today talking about Malachi, the third chapter. God making up his jewels. To be able to be with Him forever. What a great reward we, we have offered to us. You know, today I want to remind you of something that we kind of know. But many times we fail to grasp the reality of it, and that is that we are in a war. In a deadly war at that. In one sense, we can see the bodies. Another way, they're not bleeding as though they were killed in a regular conventional war. But we often think, it won't happen to me. It can't happen to me. I don't know how many people I've heard over the years say that something to the effect that, well, I don't care who leaves, I will be here all the way to the end. Or I will never do this, or I will never do that. Only to see how so many of those people are no longer with us. In a recent sermon, I spoke of the two trees, the two ways of life, and that will be going out. I think we're going to make it a must-play. Somebody thought it should be. But our parents were in a garden with two trees. There There were a lot of trees, actually, but there were only two trees that mattered, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That choice is put to us very clearly in Deuteronomy the 30th chapter. And this is a scripture that probably most people in this room, or at least many of people in this room have memorized. I call before I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life that both you and your descendants may live. There are really only two choices, life and death, blessings, good things, and curses. It's that stark. It's really only one or the other. You can't have it both ways, even though many people try. We want to have what we consider good in this world, and yet have all the rewards of the other way of life there's an adversary out here tempting us to make the wrong decision. And that choice most often appears attractive. When I said earlier on here in this sermon that your parents are trying to keep you from having fun, that's true and it's not true. It's true in the sense that they know that some of the things that are out there can be fun, but they also know from personal experience and from watching others that that fun is very temporary it doesn't last and there's a penalty to pay for going that direction in Hebrews the 11th chapter I'm going to read this from the King James version which I find a little bit more colorful I guess you might say there's some things that the old King James said in a way that the New King James just doesn't. Well, it might be a little bit more accurate in some ways. I think it lacks some of the color of the old King James. For example, when they had that riot, when it said there in the, in the book of Acts, it says, the greater part knew not why for they were there. That just sounds a little bit more colorful to me than they didn't know what they were doing or they didn't know why they were there. They, they knew not why for they were there. Here in Hebrews 11, and I'll begin in verse 24, it says, By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now here was a, a man who had everything going for him. The son of Pharaoh's daughter. You could only imagine what he had available. In the entertainment, in luxury, in prestige. He had it all. But he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Why? says, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God. To go through trials, difficulties. He chose that. This is looking at it from a big perspective. It wasn't the perspective that necessarily Moses just looked at and said, Well, I, I want this. Well, yeah, he did have a choice. He had to make a choice. But he may not have fully comprehended the whole thing, but he he did know that he had to forsake what he had for another way. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Young people and adults alike. There is, according to the Bible, pleasure in sin. But it's only for a season. It's only for a period of time. But someplace along the line, it ceases to be fun. What's fun tonight may not be fun tomorrow morning. And so God is looking at the long term. He's saying, postpone pleasure for a greater pleasure long term. And we're not talking just about in the kingdom of God. We're talking about in this life. Because there are many pleasures in this life that are positive and good. Having a happy marriage with children and, and all that that entails. In the right way, at the right time. That's good. But people try these things in the wrong order. And sometimes the price is extremely heavy. It says, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. He looked to the reward. He looked to something greater, something bigger. I'm reading a, a book right now, almost finished with it. Um, is it Rick Scott? I can't remember. It's... uh It's got his last name, the twins, the uh, astronauts. Mr. Lambert Greer uh, gave me a copy of this book. Here was a young man that was going nowhere in life. His grades were awful, they were terrible. And then he read a book, The Right Stuff, and decided that he wanted to be a test pilot and that he wanted to go to space. And he had to work extremely hard to catch up. But he got into space. In fact, he spent a year in the International Space Station. But you know, in reading this book, I've learned one thing. If you think it's fun to be out there in space, in this physical flesh, you've got another thing coming. It really doesn't sound like much fun. Those spacewalks, do you see them going around? Looks like so much fun. Well, it's not so much fun. In fact, after his year in space, he had about six months, and then he went up there for about a year. The third spacewalk was not planned, and they didn't look forward to it. They had a problem, they had to go outside, but they really didn't look forward to it. You see, they have to get up fairly early and they have to go through a long process, including putting on a diaper, because they're going to be out there for 11 hours or so. And they can't just, uh, go to the local restroom. Uh, and, and it's awkward and it's extremely uncomfortable and they have to sit in this small space while it, you know, the, the air decompresses and all that sort of thing and they have to get ready and, It's cold out there, even though they have all the stuff to keep them cold, but their feet get cold. And the hands, they can hardly move them with all the heavy gloves that they have. And their hands are just totally spent by the time they get through, and even chafed from inside. And they come in, have to change their diapers, and then they don't have a shower like we have down here. It really doesn't sound like much fun. But that was his goal, to go to space. And that drove him to make decisions in life that were very, very difficult, not easy decisions. And he had to work really, really hard, even more than the average fellow out there, because he had such poor character when it came to study. Until, again, until he was about a senior in high school, They had to play catch-up. But he worked harder than most people because he had a goal. Now, what is our goal? Do we have that goal to be in the kingdom of God? To be able to float around in space and not be uncomfortable. What is our goal? I hope it's more than simply to float around in space, but relationships being there with God the Father and Jesus Christ and finding out all the answers to the questions that we might have and all the secrets of life in this universe and to be able to have incredibly beautiful music far beyond what we can imagine just like we had today but so much even greater concerts and life in a, a wonderful world that God is opening up to us. This uh, predatory creature, Satan the devil is preying on us. It walks about as a roaring lion as it tells us in 1 Peter 5 1 Peter 5 and verses 8 and 9 This was actually quoted last night in the Bible study I thought Mr. Munson might be giving my sermon today but it says be sober verse 8, be sober be sober minded Yes, it's fine to have fun in this life in the right way, but there has to be a side of each one of us that is sober, that is thinking about things. Be vigilant. Be on guard. Don't be like those ships running up and down the east coast of the United States with their lights on, not realizing what's at stake, not realizing that they're in a war. We are in a war. There's somebody that's trying to destroy you. And trying to destroy us collectively. And he's doing a pretty good job of it in a broad, general sense. Look at all those people who once we sat beside, many of us. We were talking at the table this morning at breakfast, several of us. And how many people, even here in North Carolina, there were churches in New Bern and here and there and various places around. And now we just have a few people almost all became victims of our adversary. He destroyed people by the tens of thousands. In a war, you rarely lose that many people, although some of the wars anciently that we read of in the Bible, tens or hundreds of thousands died and perished. battle in World War II of the... uh, Hurtgen Forest it took place over a period of time. Some don't count it as a battle, but America lost 30,000 people, 30,000 men as casualties. Germans, 26, 28,000, I forget what it was. You look at the battle for Okinawa, the United States lost, killed 12,500. The Japanese a hundred thousand. And those poor people who just kind of caught in the middle, another hundred thousand. Those figures can vary depending on which source you, you read. Really honestly don't they lost so many they just don't really know how many were totally lost. But horrendous battles. Well in the worldwide Church of God we had a battle like that. We lost tens of thousands of people. Because there was an enemy there trying to destroy us. And it left a lot of people out here in the middle of nowhere. Some atheists. Read something from someone here just uh, recently, just this last week. Someone that I knew years ago who uh, is now an atheist. And promoting free thinking. But what's interesting is that it's very clear from reading what she has to say, she really doesn't know where she's going ever evolving the purpose, the meaning of life and yet thinking that everything's wonderful Lions work together as groups and they look for prey and who do they look for? well they look for someone someone, some calf or some other uh, animal in a herd that's off to the side a little bit one that Likes to experiment a little bit. Wants to see the world outside of where everybody else is. Is going out there just exploring on its own. And the lions know. That's good prey. They look for the weak. Those who are physically weak. Satan looks for those who are spiritually weak. And he's more than happy to leave you comfortable in that weak state for a while until you're close enough for him to pounce on you. He's a very crafty being. They're looking for victims. They're constantly hungry, looking for food. Although our adversary does not physically devour us, he does claim victims. But I wonder how often we fail to see what's really behind people forsaking the truth. Now, it's decisions that they make. I understand that. But there is that being out there who's trying to destroy each one of us. In Hebrews, the fifth chapter, uh, we sometimes refer to this. I know I have a number of times in more recent years. Hebrews 5 and verse 12. It says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. How many people so misunderstand this verse? How many people think that solid food, strong meat, is prophecy? We had a sermon by Mr. Wahabich on that. I think it's on the internet there about th- this very subject. You can look up there or look under his sermons. I think it's uh, the milk or the word or the meat of the word. I forget exactly the title of it. It's on our internet, uh, lcg.org. But they think it's prophecy or speculation or whatever it might be. And that's not at all what it's talking about here. For everyone who partakes only of milk He is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. Now, we began there in verse 12. He says, Some of you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you again. He is saying to the the Hebrews there that you think you're doing just fine, but you're not. I'm not saying that that I'm saying that to all of you. That's not it at all. You know, when I go around to feast sites and I talk to people and visit different churches, there's so many of you who are so with it. Who truly are with it. But I also know that not everyone is. And when Mr. Armstrong used to say that 50 percent of you don't get it, and then on one occasion I don't think even 10 percent of you get it, he was closer to the truth And estimating things with the 10% and the 50%, wasn't he? We lost tens of thousands of people there. But we've also lost those that just drift away from time to time. One or two in this congregation, another one over here, a family over there. And over a period of time, there is a certain attrition, not only from death, From defection, as it were. People losing sight of what it's all about. Losing track. Getting caught up in various heresies. And various ideas. How many young people do we lose every year? I think we are retaining more young people in the church today than we were many years ago. But we still lose A lot of them, don't we? I don't think it's the majority, but we lose young people. And that's so painful to the parents and to others when they drift away and take a different course in life. Sometimes to come back, yes, with a lot of bumps and bruises and scars and things that can't be repaired, but nevertheless they may come back. But sometimes they don't. As it says here in verse 14, But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now, what is he saying here? What What is he saying here in verse 14? Belo- solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern good and evil. He's basically saying here that some of you, back in verse 12, though you should be mature, you are not, and you don't know how to discern between good and evil. Oh yes, you know what day is a Sabbath day. Do you know how to make decisions of what's right and wrong, good and evil, and how you observe the Sabbath day? You know about the holy days. You know about tithing. You know about all these different things, laws of clean and unclean you Do you know how to make decisions in those areas that aren't always so clear to us human beings? By reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. That means that we are going to make decisions in life that we should learn from. People ask questions as an example of, can I do this on the Sabbath, or can I do that on the Sabbath? Well, you know, sometimes we just have to make a decision based on the best understanding that we have, and maybe with counsel we make that decision, and then when we do that thing that we're asking about, we say, you know, this was not a good decision. This was not a good decision. We were invited by one of our neighbors to uh, just come over for some some drinks and refreshments here uh, last Saturday night. Now, we have some wonderful, wonderful neighbors. And we've been over to their house on more than one occasion And I know that when they get the neighborhood together, people basically stay sober. I don't really, I don't think I've ever seen And we have a number of these block parties and different things that come up from time to time since we've been there. And uh, I I don't see people getting drunk and that sort of thing. I have heard a a story or two that, I think two, (laughs) that I wouldn't want to repeat. But overall, really fine neighbors. But over the years, we've learned something that you probably already know, that if someone's inviting you over for refreshments, and it's the 17th of December, this is probably going to be a Christmas party. <laughs> Not exchanging gifts, but sure enough, after we didn't go, we had to uh, find one of our younger folks here and, and uh, beg that we could come over and and, uh, crash their little party or whatever. Uh, just so we'd be away from there. Have a, a good excuse of not being there. And, uh, anyway, on the internet, they, they, they had advertised as their Christmas party. And I could just imagine somebody saying that on Facebook. Here's presiding evangelist of the Living Church of God going to a Christmas party. <laughs> uh, in other words, you learn, don't you? I've done things, on the other hand, that I realized that, you know, that wasn't a good decision. I'm not going to do that again. You learn to discern by reason of use, by the decisions you make. But do we learn from them, or do we just get caught up in what we do? Instead of learning from them. So we must learn to exercise our senses to discern both good and evil. This passage of scripture, along with the other scriptures I've mentioned so far today, are usually, are basically very familiar to us, aren't they? They're very familiar to us. And I'd like to refer to something that I wrote in the booklet on John 3.16. A booklet that I hope you've read simply because it covers a number of subjects that we don't cover anyplace else. And let me say this, that... So many things in, in life, at least in my life, that I've done have not been through a great uh, planning. I never planned on writing a booklet on John 3.16. I set out to write a uh, an article on the subject. And uh, one of our uh, members of the editorial staff said, uh, You know, this would really be good for a series of articles, because when I started writing it, I never got past the first two words, for God. (laughs) Well, who is God? What is God? And that was a little bit of a problem, because that also involves what is not God, which is God is not a trinity. And do we really want to put that at the front of a booklet uh, that... Probably people who are going to order it are relatively religious, to say the least. I don't think the most secular people are going to look for John 3.16, but it it was a bit of a problem. But anyway, we started there, and, and he said, you know, if you just took each phrase, you could write a series of articles, and then we could turn it into a booklet for God. So love, what does it mean, love? The world, what is the world? Is it only those religious people that are out here? Or does God love all the world and have a a plan and a purpose that every human being who's ever lived is going to have an opportunity? That He gave. Who gave? We we so often look at John 3.16 as being all about Christ, but it was God the Father who gave His Son as a sacrifice. There's so many things about that verse that simply are not understood by the world. Well, in that booklet, that again I never really planned on writing, but it turned out that way, I wrote in chapter 6 on memory, faith, and belief, something that I think is relevant to us today. And I have a few ellipses here to shorten it, so it's a little bit left out there, but the ability to remember is a wonderful gift. Thankfully, we have a memory, otherwise we probably wouldn't be here today. We'd have forgotten what time it was, we'd forgotten where we should be, we'd forgotten everything. Ability to remember is a wonderful gift. You're reading... And understanding these words because God gave you the ability to remember. We had to remember the letters and how they're put together and how to sound out the words and to remember what those words mean. But memorization has a downside. Many North American Sunday afternoon couch potatoes Can tell you that John 3.16 is the verse citation displayed in the stands behind the end zone whenever a field goal is attempted. Behind home plate during the World Series or behind the goal of a televised basketball game. That fellow with the sign seems to be everywhere. But most cannot tell you what the verse says. Actually, I haven't seen it as much lately. Maybe he died. I don't know. I I haven't seen that. Either that or they've kept him from there. Some can actually quote this golden verse verbatim. But can they explain in detail the meaning of John 3.16? Do they understand it in its context of the rest of the Bible? This is the point. The problem with memorization is that once we learn something, our brains stash it away and concentrate on something new. We can pull up that piece of information and recite it, but our thinking cap has generally moved on to the next challenge. Such is the case with John 3.16. But such is also the case with 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9. About that lion, lion that is roaring, trying to devour us. Such is also the case with Deuteronomy 30, verse 19 about life and death, blessing and cursing. Oh yes, we know that verse. But have we stopped thinking about what it means? Such is the case of Hebrews, the fifth chapter, verses 12 to 14, about the milk and the meat and having our senses exercised to discern right and wrong, good and evil. Such is the case with... Ephesians, the second chapter, and verse two, which let's turn to. Ephesians two. Oh yes, we've read this so many times. We know it, don't we? But does the message sink in? Do we consider what it means right now in my world today? I'll start in verse one. It says, you may, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. A- unless God has made us alive through repentance, acceptance of Christ's sacrifice, the fact that His Son did sacrifice Himself on our behalf, uh, except for our baptism, the laying on of hands to receive of God's Spirit so that Jesus Christ can live His life in us, except for all of that, we were dead. It's just a matter of when. That's all. We were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world. The course of this world. Young people. And I don't mean this to put you down. Because every adult was there at one time or another. But in general, we walk according to the course of the world in which we're growing up. According to the way that it is at that time. We tend to dress like the world. We tend to talk like the world. We tend to love the same music, the same movies, all of that. That's the world that we know. That's the world you know. You can't be expected to know the world 50 years ago. You can hear about it, but this is your world. And it's so easy to think that, well this is, this is a great world. It, it's fun. I like my friends. I like the music. Sometimes the term music is really stretching the word a great deal. And, and, and your music today isn't necessarily worse than the music of the 1970s, as an example. Isn't it funny how what young people say often is true? Well, Dad, you know, that was your music, this is my music. But Dad thinks that the music of the 60s was somehow more godly than the music of the 90s or whatever it might be, the 2000s and, you know, 10s. So we have these dances. I don't know what we have in line for for Monday night. But sometimes those of my generation will have, uh, you know, a sock hop with uh, uh, the music of that time. And when you really stop and listen to the message of it all, was it all so great? You know one of the great controversies right now that's going on? Uh, it, it might be off the news because there's something else that will take its place, I'm sure. I, I had to actually look this up. I didn't know what the controversy was. It, it had to do with the song, uh, what, what is it? And I think that one of the, one of the women sang it, uh, sung it, has uh, recorded it. Uh, maybe it's cold outside. Now, really, it's not a very good song, but it goes back to the 1940s, early 40s. And this woman is at this fellow's apartment, and so he wants her to stay the night. That's not a very good message for people who aren't married. And she comes up with these excuses, and he's telling her, well, it's cold outside. You really don't want to go out there. And I don't remember how it all ends up. It's it's kind of a Christmas uh, song, I, I guess. More well, movie about that. So I haven't seen it in a long, long, long time. If I ever did, I, I probably did at some time. So I, I'm thinking, okay, wait a minute. Why is this controversial today? We have same-sex marriage. We have trans- transgenderism. We've got this fellow that thinks he's a she in British Columbia who was running for office and lost and is now suing, and actually this poor fellow that, that revealed all this stuff is now being brought before a tribunal, which is kind of a scary-sounding term. Uh, we don't really think of that term here. It sounds very draconian in so many ways. He's been brought before a tribunal in British Columbia because he told the truth about this man that thinks he's a woman and dresses like one and so forth. Truth is not a part of, of our discourse today. So he's guilty of a hate crime. Could cost him thousands, even tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars, we don't know. But it could cost him rather dearly. I mean, it's possible he could spend time in jail. So I'm thinking, in the context of our world today, what can be so awful about this song? I hadn't thought about it, the Me Too movement. Here's this man trying to take advantage of this woman. As though that's never ever happened before, or will happen again. But it's a woman singing the song, and how she has betrayed the women. By singing this song. Now, I'm not defending the song. I think it is corrupt. I don't think it's, it, you know, always has a catchy tune. Some of the, the prettiest songs with the best tunes have the most awful messages. So I'm not defending the message on it. I'm just amazed at the rationale behind it. It's a strange world that we live in. But what is the course of this world? What is the world today promoting? On television, the internet, and advertising. Uh, the uh, the room where we are has some books. As sometimes uh, rooms do have, and I I happened to pick this one up. It, it caught my attention. I like nonfiction. And this looked like a non-fiction book, so I just happened to pick it up. It, the title of it is uh, Who Killed Hollywood and Put the Tarnish on Tinseltown? Um, I haven't read very much, but I just read a little bit. Not even the first chapter, but I came across this. It says, Today the decision as to whether to green light a movie May involve scores of executives. Where it used to be a half dozen people deciding, do we think this will this will go or not? Now they have to have scores of executives inside, uh, with a debate hinging on questions like, how strong is the video and DVD aftermarket? Will the subject matter attract marketing partners like McDonald's? Will there be tie-ins for toys and other merchandising opportunities? Could the storyline inspire a theme park ride? Now, what is that saying? What's the message that that is saying? Well, it's very simply this. That the whole movie industry is deciding how can we manipulate the audience? What can we sell the audience? It was... Uh, Mark The Marking of Evil, as he points out that everything on MTV is an infomercial. And that's what our movies are they're infomercials. They're trying to sell us on something. They're not just telling a good story. Now, there are a few out there. There really are a few really good movies, but I'll tell you, they're precious few. And traveling across the ocean from time to time, which we do, or across country, uh, they have movies you can watch. And after, you know, ten hours on the plane, you get tired of reading and sleeping. So you want to see what a movie is. And, and sometimes you can't find a good movie. And they might have a hundred of them. But you read the, the description. Or sometimes you turn it on. And five minutes into it, you realize this is not a good movie. There are precious few that are out there. There are a few with good messages in them that are clean and nonviolent but they are precious few the message that they're trying to promote is oftentimes a lifestyle they're trying to promote tattoos they're trying to as marcellian points out they go into the the most degenerate parts of the cities and they find out what is the next cool thing they're going to sell cool to you now Young people, I'm, I'm not, again, I'm not trying to insult your, your intelligence or anything like that, because some of you are really smart. But your lack of experience in the world sometimes shelters you from understanding, and, and it's not just young people, it's adults, sadly, many adults as well, who don't realize what you are being sold. They are trying to manipulate you. To a way of life. To Something, and they're trying to merchandise off you. They're trying to make money from you. It's like vaping. Some of our young people, I have no doubt, in this room, vape. I don't want to shock you. I could ask for a show of hands. I thought about doing that because I thought, well, maybe somebody would raise their hand before they realize what they're asking. That's the big thing. You don't get tar from vaping. You don't get lung cancer, at least we don't know. But I'll tell you one thing you'll get from Juul, and that's a heavy dose of nicotine. Now, why, why do you think that they put nicotine in there? It's one of the most addictive substances we have. Why do they want you to be addicted? That's money for them. So here's somebody up there that's 40 or 50 or 60 years old, a group of people. They've decided that in order to make money, they will put all these various flavors in there for young people who are not really looking at it uh, from the big picture. They're just saying, boy, this looks like it's fun, and my friends are doing it, and it kind of smells good. It doesn't really taste. It smells more than anything else, and it's pleasurable that way not realizing they could wake up in a very, very short period of time and be addicted to this and be paying for it, if nothing else, monetarily the rest of their lives. You know, one reason that I I didn't smoke, I, I, I suppose it's hard to say why you make decisions but one reason I didn't smoke is because my father gave me a cigar when I was about six years old. The girl next door came over. We lived in Alaska in a little one room uh, apartment, whatever, I don't know what you call it. But anyway, uh, flat, on a flat, it was, anyway, uh, it was flat, but anyway. Um, <laughs> we, we, we lived in this place, and the girl next door came over showing that she could smoke. And So my father. Gave me a cigar and sent me over to her place. Except I never made it that far. I turned quite green, apparently. I don't remember my look. I just remember how I felt and what the results of that feeling were. And decided, this is not a good idea. This is not a good idea. But there's another reason I didn't smoke. Because I could calculate, okay, X number of dollars a pack... And, you know, you you put that out over 10 years. That's a car. That's a nice car. Or over 30 years, that's a house. You start calculating what this costs. There is a cost to this. And there's somebody who's 40 or 50 or 60 years old, older than your own parents, who's saying, I want that guy. And I want that girl. I want all these young people out here because I want to be rich. You know who's investing in Jewel? The big tab- tobacco companies. Marijuana. Do you realize that, as far as I know, the booklet that we have published that's had more backlash, at least in recent time, is a booklet on marijuana? Thank you, Mr. Wahavich. <laughs> Excellent booklet. It doesn't bother me that we get backlash. That means where the message is going, where it needs to go, in a way. You know what's sad is that some of that backlash has been from members. And you know what the backlash is? Well, it's medical marijuana. It is the wonder drug. It was actually used in the in the temple. It was part of the incense. It is, uh What do they call this stuff? Uh, uh, I can't remember that, that term that they use, but uh, it's a new age term. Well, the booklet points out that, yes, there may be medical benefits that we will discover, and there are some uh, points that for uh, seizures, the non-hallucinogenic part of the uh cannabinoid uh, or whatever it is, uh plant, uh cannabis plant, may have some medical benefit. But we're not denying that. He didn't deny that in the booklet. But what was the big picture of the booklet? If you think this is about medical marijuana, you need to go back to Hebrews, the fifth chapter, verses 12 through 14. This is not a debate over medical marijuana. You want to know the proof of that. Look at who's investing and look at the money. Now they're telling us, oh, this is a a, a great investment. You have the former Speaker of the House, John Boehner, out there on radio putting on seminars on, here's how you can make money off of this. That's what it's all about. It's always been about money. It's always been about causing you, to use that product so that somebody can get rich. Are we able to see what's going on here? Are we so blind that we just swallow what the world is saying? They're, they talk about medical marijuana. That's to get you, the allies, the people who may not use it, to get you on board instead of being against it. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Remarkable that we can be so blind. What's at stake here is our very eternal life. We have a very clever adversary. Some years ago, I gave a sermon using a few props. I don't remember exactly what year that was. It was around 2001 or two. 99, 2000, 2001, 2003. I couldn't find it on the <coughs> the uh, the uh, <coughs> our internet site, our our uh, LCG site. <coughs> but uh, I, I realize that there are a lot of people that weren't there then. Uh, I just saw a statistic that in Canada, and it's probably similar here that 37% of the people who are baptized members were baptized in the last 10 years. 37%. When I went to Canada at the end of 2001, so I'll take 2001 figures, we had 350 people. I think now we're running around 850 or thereabouts, in that range. It's a lot of new people. A lot of people have been baptized since that time or started attending. Those of you who are 16 or, or younger wouldn't remember this sermon, I'm fairly certain, because it's been quite a few years since I gave it. So I'm going to uh, bring those props back up. I want to show you a little bit here uh, in, in a, a physical way so that you can see what uh, what I'm talking about. So let's bring the first slide up. <clears throat> And what this is going to picture is, uh, a relationship of the church to the world. Okay. Uh, these, uh, these gentlemen back there that do all this stuff, they are, they do a Herculean job very quietly. It's only when something goes wrong that we think about them. (laughs) But they do so much that is so right. Okay, here we go somehow. It's going to come up. There we go. Okay. I knew they'd have it. Okay. Now, what this describes is the direction that the world is going. The lower line is the direction the world is going. And you see two dots there, because that's related to the year. So the gray dot on the left uh, pictures the world in 2005. We have not descended to the place of the world in 2005 until 2010, because, you see, we're better than the world. We're always ahead on top of, more righteous than the world, aren't we? We don't do the things they do. So, we follow the world. I don't know whether it's five years, seven years, or two years, but we're always a little bit behind, aren't we? In other words, we are. We haven't descended into the same debauchery that the world has at the same time. We're, we have a lag time. Okay, let's go to the next one. So here's where we are today. In 2018, the yellow dot down there. Now, I'd like you to remember the first slide in 2005 where the world was. Remember that? Uh, we're way below where even the world was in 2005. Now, please understand, we're just talking about varying degrees. It's. Uh, I don't have an exact exact data on where we are compared to the world but the point is that if we measure ourselves against the world if that's our measurement then yes we might be better than the world but we are descending with the world and it's not very long before we are worse off than the world was x number of years ago we accept certain things on television have for such a long time and in books that we read and things that we do that X number of years ago, we would never have put up with. There was a time that I don't think that any member of the church of God would be saying, well, medical marijuana, that's great, so the booklet, there's a problem with it. But we have this constant barrage. Oh yes, medical, it's great. Nobody denying the fact that there may be medical properties that are okay and good. But, you know, opium has medical properties. Now, there's a little bit of a problem now because of the opioid epidemic. But if you're dying of some terrible disease and horrible pain, uh, there's a benefit, isn't there? Uh, There may be other benefits that are positive. But did you ever notice the advertisements on television, where they have the new drug out, and it has wonderful, happy people that have no problems, they're throwing the ball, they're running, they're jumping, they're doing all kinds of things, they're with their husband or wife, and they're so wonderful because of this new product, but then, of course, in the background, if you have this, don't do blah, 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 you know, it goes on and on, and you think, who in the world would ever have this particular thing? It may cause uh, you know, lymphoma or other forms of cancer and uh, uh, destroy your kidneys and your liver and all this. And it goes on and on and on. And then the next advertisement, what is it about? Well, did you take this drug? Hey, we're going to sue him. <laughs> now, I, I, I'm not saying, I'm not trying to make a judgment as to what you do on an individual basis in certain these things. And you, you have to weigh the, the You know, the pros and the cons, I suppose. But don't jump on this medical marijuana thing until all the facts are in. That is not the issue. It's people who want to make money and to merchandise off you. That's that's the main message that we need to understand. That's that's why some of you need to read the booklet and read it carefully. Understand what it's saying. And that's just one thing. I'm just bringing out one thing here. Okay, let's go to the next slide. Ah, here's where we are, right? Here's the church at the top. We should not be following that line, that downhill line, should we? This is the right one, right? Wrong. Next slide. You see, we all came into the church at some different time. Let's say 2005. Now, if you came into the church in 2005, you came in from the world, didn't you? And and where is the world? It's on a downward slide. So you can't just stay with a flat line out there because there's a certain amount of the world you've already picked up. And the point is that the individual in the church need to be growing in grace and knowledge. We need to be growing in our understanding. I don't mean being more self-righteous. But we do need to know what's right and what's wrong and to be able to discern between what's right and wrong in the world in which we live. And we need to be growing and maturing. As it says there in Second um, uh, Peter 3.18, we must be growing in grace and in knowledge. And as it says there in Matthew, the 5th chapter in verse 48, that uh, we are to become therefore perfect. Become perfect. We're not perfect yet. But this is what we should be doing. We should be striving for perfection. Striving for the right kind of balance in all things. Striving for a better understanding. Striving to be able to see what really is wrong with this world. Not to just be you know, tearing it down for the sake of tearing it down, but to be avoiding it. And not being manipulated constantly by these ads that are out there. Whether they be legitimate ads, labeled as ads, or infomercials that are not advertised as infomercials. There's a very important scripture in Luke the seventeenth chapter, and I think it's important that we um, that we think of this. And I've run right out of time here, so I'll just get to the uh, the nub here. In Luke seventeen verse twenty six, says, "As it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man." They, they were just doing their ordinary things. Eating, drinking, marrying, giving, and marriage. All these things that people normally do. They were just living their lives as anybody has down through time. Until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. They were caught unaware. Likewise also as it was also in the days of Lot. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. It's going to be the same way. Think about what it was like to live in Sodom. Why would why would Lot live there? You know, it must have been a wonderful place to live. Lot of amenities. He had family. He had daughters and son-in-laws and grandchildren there. It was a prosperous place, apparently. There were a lot of things that were probably positive, but there were a lot of things that were not so positive. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Do you realize that we are living in Sodom and Gomorrah? And if we're not quite there, we will be? It's coming. It's actually, it's already here. It says, and that day he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him, uh, not come down to, uh, take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. And then the message here, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. She had grandchildren. She had daughters. She probably had a comfortable home, and she couldn't leave it. She fled, but she kept looking back at the world that she had grown up in, the world that she had lived in for so many years. You know, brethren, there are two trees, two ways of life. There are two worlds, this world and tomorrow's world. I'd like to finish with 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5. Verse 6. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Let us watch. Let us be aware. Let us understand that there is a... An enemy out here. That we are at war. That there has to be a certain sober-minded approach that we have toward life. Yes, enjoy life. Have fun. But be sober and watch. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober. Putting on the breastplate of faith and love. As a helmet, the hope of salvation. That's our hope. That's our future. Salvation. Being saved. Being a part of the very family of God. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Therefore, He says, comfort each other and edify, or build up. That's what we're here to do on this family weekend. Edify one another Just as you are also doing. So brethren, let us be sober. Let us think about life seriously. Let's enjoy the things that God gives to us. But let's be awake and alert and remember Lot's wife.